Three Sundays come together in a week, but not till then, you young scapegrace, not till then if I die for it. You know me, I'm a man of my word. Now be off. Here he swallowed his bumper of port while I rushed from the room in despair. A very fine old English gentleman was my grand-uncle Rumgudgeon, but unlike him of the song, he had his weak points. He was a little, pursy, pompous, passionate, semicircular somebody with a red nose, a thick skull, a long purse, and a strong sense of his own consequence. With the best heart in the world, he contrived, through a predominant whim of contradiction, to earn for himself, among those who only knew him superficially, the character of a curmudgeon. Like many excellent people, he seemed possessed with a spirit of tantalization which might easily, at a casual glance, have been mistaken for malevolence. To every request, a positive no was his immediate answer. But in the end, in the long, long end, there were exceedingly few requests which he refused. Against all attacks upon his purse, he made the most sturdy defense— but the amount extorted from him at last was generally in direct ratio with the length of the siege and the stubbornness of the resistance. In charity, no one gave more liberally or with a worse grace. For the fine arts, and especially for the belles lettres, he entertained a profound contempt. With this he had been inspired by Casimir Perrier, whose pert little query, A quoi un poète est-elle bon, he was in the habit of quoting, with a very droll pronunciation, as the ne plus ultra of logical wit. Thus my own inkling for the muses had excited his entire displeasure. He assured me one day, when I asked him for a new copy of Horace, that the translation of Poeta nascitur non fit was a nasty poet for nothing fit, a remark which I took in high dudgeon. His repugnance to the humanities had also much increased of late by an accidental bias in favor of what he supposed to be natural science. Somebody had accosted him in the street, mistaking him for no less a personage than Dr. Double L.D., the lecturer upon quack physics. This set him off at a tangent, and just at the epoch of this story, for story it is getting to be after all, my grand-uncle Rumgudgeon was accessible and pacific only upon the points which happened to chime in with the caprioles of the hobby he was riding. For the rest, he laughed with his arms and legs, and his politics were stubborn and easily understood. He thought with Horsley that... The people have nothing to do with the laws but to obey them. I had lived with the old gentleman all my life. My parents, in dying, had bequeathed me to him as a rich legacy. I believe the old villain loved me as his own child, nearly, if not quite as well, as he loved Kate. But it was a dog's existence that he led me, after all. From my first year until my fifth, he obliged me with very regular floggings. From five to fifteen, he threatened me hourly with the house of correction. From fifteen to twenty, not a day passed in which he did not promise to cut me off with a shilling. 
I was a sad dog, it is true, but then it was a part of my nature, a point of my faith. In Kate, however, I had a firm friend, and I knew it. She was a good girl, and told me very sweetly that I might have her, plum and all, whenever I could badger my grand-uncle Rumgudgeon into the necessary consent. Poor girl, she was barely fifteen, and without this consent, her little amount in the funds was not come-atable until five immeasurable summers had dragged their slow length along. What then to do? At fifteen, or even at twenty-one, for I had now passed my fifth Olympiad, five years in prospect are very much the same as five hundred. In vain we besieged the old gentleman with importunities. Here was a piece de resistance, as Messrs. Uda and Karem would say.